Good morning, friends. Good morning. Matthew chapter 11 this morning. So, uh, Protestant Christianity, the way that we practice Christianity, is, is a rather casual outward religion. If you were to compare this to anywhere else in the world, any other uh, religions, we don't focus a lot on protocol or ceremony or acts of reverence. You think about what others do. Others all over the world will take their shoes off before they come into a temple. Muslims prostrate themselves on their face five times every single day. Incense burns in Orthodox churches and stained glass adorns Catholic cathedrals. Now, I don't think we're called to those externals because the Lord calls us to worship Him in spirit and in truth. We get the right emphasis by emphasizing the inner reality of worship. But friends, let's emphasize the inner reality of worshiping our God. And that's what we get to do this morning, is worship Him around His Word. This, this morning's passage is really a call for us, the church, to worship. But I want us to prepare for that, even as we begin. In a minute, we're going to consider one of the choicest truths, one of the most precious gems that God has revealed to His church and for His church. This is part of our inheritance as a people. It has to do with the activity of God in saving sinners. We talked this morning about His sovereign grace in salvation. You might have heard it called election or predestination. It's God's choice to save a particular people from among the perishing of the world. And this is a treasure of heaven in our hands this morning. So I don't want us to rush into the temple. Let's take our shoes off on the way. Because these truths are not just to be roughly handled for our own curiosity. This is to draw us to worship our sovereign king, our gracious and good and wonderful God. This is why God's given us these truths to lead us to praise. So let's look to God's word this morning, seeking to understand. But let's seek to understand so that we can worship. Let's see about that today. So before we jump in, we're going to be looking at verse 25 down through the end of Matthew 11. But before we get there, I wanted to remind us where we are in the chapter. You might not have been here with us last week. Verses 20 through 24 were rough. Jesus was calling out some cities for their unbelief in him. And so these these cities had the person of Christ there proclaiming the gospel. Jesus himself proclaiming the gospel. Accompanying that with signs and wonders and miracles and they turned away. And they rejected him. And they refused repentance. And they loved their sin. And they chose the darkness rather than the light. And verse 24, the one before where we start, says, I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Christ is talking, in other words, about unbelievers. About the unsaved. In this case, about those who had heard the gospel from the very mouth of Christ and yet had turned away. 
the clear teaching of Scripture is that for those who, for whom the day of judgment is intolerable, it is because of their choice. It's because of their rejection of God. It's because of their persistence in their sin. It is their actions and stubborn disobedience. Hell is not an unrighteous response from God. It is the righteous response of God to the unrighteousness of man. This is the, the unified teaching of Scripture. It's clearly the teaching of Christ in verses 20 through 24. The doctrine of man's responsibility before a holy God. That's the background of the text we're about to open. But our text takes us a step further and reveals more. It turns to the doctrine of election. So with that, let's, let's look at these verses together. Matthew 11, verse 25, down through the end, verse 30. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. God's Word. So we've said that this passage looks at the doctrine of election. I want to just start with a basic definition and move on from there. So election is the scriptural doctrine which declares that God chooses who will be saved. That God chooses, not on the basis of someone's goodness, or worthiness, or righteousness. That he chooses not based on foreseeing their faith, or their humility, or any other characteristic in them, but he chooses according to the good pleasure of his will. According to his own purpose. He chose who would be saved before the foundation of the world. And he works that out in human history. And so... In verse 25, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. What are, the little, what are these things that Jesus is talking about? These things God has hidden from some and revealed to others. The context of what Jesus is talking about is the fact that all these cities hadn't turned to Christ. That all these, these people had not turned and repented. And Jesus looks at his Father and says, I praise you. Because you've hidden these things from the wise and the understanding. And you've revealed these things to little children, to infants. These things are the things of salvation. The inner reality of who Christ is and what he came to do. The scripture says that that. Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing. And it is God's work to open the eyes that we could see these 
mysteries of Christ and, and come to Him. So these, these are the, these things that are being discussed. Things that God has hidden from some and revealed to others. And then down in verse 27, we see that it's not just the Father at work, but that He works through the Son. Verse 27, no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Who knows the Father? Whomever the, the Son chooses to reveal Him to. That's who knows the Father. Who does not know the Father? Whomever the Son has not chosen to reveal Him to. Here is God, the Father, and the Son working in concert for the salvation of man. And they do so by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the agent that opens the eyes, that, that gives the new life, that brings the new birth. So does Scripture teach that man is responsible for his sin? Yes, it does, from start to finish. Does the Scripture teach that man is responsible to repent and to believe? Yes, indeed, it does, but the scripture also declares, alongside that responsibility, and yet beyond that responsibility, that responsibility that men and women have to make choices regarding God, stands another choice, and that is the decision of God. The Father's decision to reveal Christ to some. Choice the Son to reveal the Father to some. Now it says that he's hidden these things from the wise and understanding, but revealed them to infants. Now, it doesn't mean that everyone who's wise is necessarily excluded from salvation. Nor does it mean that foolishness is an automatic ticket in. And so you kind of merit it by being foolish. But that's not what he's it's not what he's saying, but rather that God has seen fit to upend the normal order of things. To upend the way that the world tends to work. By granting salvation to, to the weak and to the poor. To the uneducated. To the simple and to the sinner. He makes clear that salvation is not merited. It is not because of some kind of merit within us of wisdom or good decision-making or humility or maturity or anything like it. To the contrary, church, salvation comes to those whom the Father chooses to give it. That is the basis of our salvation. How does God make this choice? How does He, how does he make this choice? How does He decide to save some and not others. Verse 26. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Choice of salvation is made in accordance with the will of God. It's made in accordance with His plan and His purpose. If you were to study this across the Scriptures, you would immediately be drawn to Ephesians chapter 1, which speaks all about election, and it gives us the same underlying cause in that passage. It says in verse 11 that we are predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. 
predestined according to his will. Time and again, church, we are brought by Scripture up to the edge of a great sea. It is a great sea. It's a sea called the will of God. And the Scripture leads us up to the shores and no further. It leads us to look out and to marvel upon it. And to humble ourselves before the God of this great sea. It's an ocean that we cannot pass, that we cannot comprehend. We're, go- we're given no vehicle by which we can explore it, and no light by which we can see into it. God brings us to the edge of this great sea and then bids us explore no further. But to be content with what He has revealed. Here is the reason for election. The will of God. It is the true reason. It is the only reason. Never is God's choice to reveal Christ to some and, and, and hide Him from others. Never is that choice said to be based upon something in them. Never. He doesn't, he doesn't foresee something in us. Uh, a righteousness. A wisdom. A humility. A status. He doesn't look down through the corridors of time and notice some favorable characteristic or attitude or faith. Never is God's choice said to be based in something in us. Rather, it is always based in something in Him. He saves according to His will. He has no other guide. He needs no other guide. He saves according to His will. Are your shoes still off this morning? As we approach this? As we stand upon the edge of this mighty sea? The scripture says that the judgments of the Lord are like the great deep. Psalm 36, 6. They're like the great deep, the abyss, the Pacific. They are beyond the exploration of man. It is beyond the scope of our understanding. Now, we have to acknowledge as we stand here, sadly, that our hearts rebel against this. There's something sinful within us which hates the sovereignty of God. There's something sinful within us that ultimately just wants to be sovereign ourselves and not leave sovereignty to the sovereign. That wants to explore this a little bit more. To ask some questions. Approaches it with some suspicion, maybe some accusation. We would press beyond the shore and plunge into the deep and look for those things which would displease us in God and seek to know what God has chosen to conceal. Friends, let us content ourselves to know what God has made known. Exodus says, The secret things belong to the Lord. Those that are revealed belong to us, our children. Let us content ourselves with those things that he has revealed to them. But what what should our response be to this awesome power of God 
that, that is before us in this passage. It's power of God over the salvation of men. Let, let, let us observe the behavior of Christ in this passage. Because I notice that Christ doesn't ask questions. He doesn't murmur. He doesn't plunge on ahead, though he is equal with God. But here's, here's the assumption of Christ. Whatever my God has ordained is right. Whatever my God has ordained is right. And he proceeds to worship. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have done this. We, uh, we Westerners, we like our science. Even those of you that don't like science, like science. Here's what I mean. We like our evidence. We want a reason, a rationale. We want to be able to follow the logic, follow why things work the way things work. So how can we know that this choice of God to save some and pass over others is right? How can we know that it's just? What evidence may we bring forward to examine this claim? Church, here's your evidence. Here is, here's your highest argument. Here's the, the pinnacle of proof is verse 26. For such was your gracious will. We're talking about the will of God. Which is good. Indeed, best cannot be improved upon. We need nothing by which to measure the rightness of the will of God. The will of God is the measuring stick by which we measure the rightness of anything else. The will of God stands as the pinnacle and perfection of goodness. And all other things are judged next to is. The good pleasure of God, friends, should be worth more to us as a people than 10,000 other arguments. For such was his gracious will. And so Christ declares, I thank you, Father, for this. I thank you that you have chosen to reveal to some and to hide from others. Now, something that can kind of catch our hearts and pull us away from worship and, and into concern over these things is a misunderstanding of what is being said. So I don't want us to confuse the situation. God keeps no one from heaven. God keeps no one from heaven. It's not the doctrine of election. Here, here's the situation. When was the last time you participated in a poll? In a survey. Raise your hand if in the last week you participated in a poll. <laughs> Everybody should raise their hands. Get it? Yeah, okay. God has taken a poll. Taken a survey. He's looked over all people, in all places, at all times. And he knows the hearts of men. He knows each heart better than we know our own. And, knowing each heart perfectly, he has sought out among mankind who would choose heaven. 
Who is it that pursues righteousness, that loves holiness, that worships the one and true and living God whom heaven adores? Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3 tells us about this poll. Verse 2, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. And then the survey results are brought forward in verse 3. They have all turned aside. Together, they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. God keeps not one from heaven. For not one chooses heaven. Not one. They, be more appropriate to say, we, have all turned aside. Have all become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Were God to leave mankind to their own devices, to their own decisions, to their own choices, then heaven would be empty. And hell would be bursting at the scene. Such is the choice of man regarding God. The gates of heaven are open wide through Christ. And there's a stream of humanity pushing and shoving, elbowing to get past each other like a mighty river flowing not towards the gates of heaven, but away as fast as possible away. This is the situation of mankind. It is far worse than we think. It's not just that we don't deserve heaven. It's that we don't want it. And all turn aside. And all run the other way. Oh, the sinfulness of man. Oh, the helplessness of this race. If God had simply provided a way of salvation and then left us alone, none would be saved. God didn't do that. Glory. He chooses to save, to reveal personally, individually, to reach down into that river and pull people out. This is what God does to gently remove the satanic and sinful blinders over our heart that we can behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He gives grace to His people, sovereign grace to His people. He elects before the foundation of the world. Sent Christ in real time, to die for his people. And then throughout history, he draws one, and then another, and then another, and then another. That's the work of the Spirit. That's the new birth. And they cry out, thank you. There's two babies being born right now. How about that? I'm sure there's more than two. But there's two here. That's amazing. What part does the baby play in this scenario? Are they choosing this moment to be born? Did they design or pick who they wanted their parents to be? What country to be born in? What age and time? The new birth is just like the old birth. 
It is an act of God, apart from the infant. When God moves upon a, a heart and brings them to Himself. You know, you know what they do? We're pray, we were just praying for this, right? To those little babies when they're born. What do you want to hear? When you scream, like as soon as they're born, right? The newborn saint screams out in faith and repentance. That's what they do. God, forgive me. It's the first cry. But let me tell you, that cry isn't what makes them alive. It just shows that they are. It just shows that they are. Praise God that He made us alive. This is sovereign grace. Do you understand the, the wording sovereign grace? It's grace, which means it's undeserved, freely given, but it's sovereignly bestowed given by the King to those whom He would draw to Himself. A sovereign grace. Friend, application one, have you turned to Christ? Have you turned to Him? This, this passage could be confusing. And then you would say, well, I'm not sure. Am I elect or not? That, that is a distortion of this teaching to go there. Have you turned to Christ? Think not about whether you're elect, because whether you are or not is hidden in God. He does not, there's no list here. He does not reveal that. What does He call us to do? He doesn't call us to consider an invisible list. He does not call us to consider ourselves. He calls us to consider Christ. That's what He calls us to do. So, in verse 27, Christ had just said, No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal. Now, how does Jesus apply these words? How does, how does He apply the doctrine of election? He applies it in verse 28. Come to me! That's what He says. Come to me! All who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. This is the promise of Christ. This is His promise to us. It's not contrary to election. It's the fulfillment of election. That he turns not one away who comes to him. Friend, look to Christ this morning. Come to Christ this morning. Come to me, all who labor. All who are heavy laden. I will give you rest. You will find rest for your soul. So I want to take the last couple of minutes that we have and just kind of summarize what we've seen and then briefly apply it. Several years ago, a friend gave me a word picture about election that I think is wonderful. I hope it helps you as we think about this together. It's a picture. It's a picture of a gigantic cross. And you think of this as, as the way to heaven, as, as the way of salvation, as the way to God. If you're to find God, you have to go through the cross. Think of it like a, a, a cross-shaped doorway, if you will, right? Okay. Now, you see that cross? There's a banner that flies over top of that cross, and it has these words on it. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is, this is, this is a gospel call that goes out into all the world. It is the banner that flies over the cross. And for all who heed that and, and walk through 
and find himself in the kingdom of God. Look back at the cross. And from this side, you see another banner flying over. Chosen before the foundation of the world. What? How could that be? Are humans responsible to get saved? Indeed we are. And I hope you hear it clear this, this morning. Repent and believe and turn to Christ. And is God sovereign over that choice and over salvation? Indeed he is. For none know the Father except those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. When we think about hell, and we should, it is filled with those who deserve to be there. One gets more punishment in hell than they have earned and they deserve. If you, if you want to think of a sign over hell, it is enter and receive what you have earned. Oh. Hell is full of those who deserve to be there. But heaven is not the same. It is not full of those who deserve to be there. For none deserves to be there. It is full of those who are there by grace and grace alone. That is who populates heaven. Those who are the recipients of unmerited, sovereign grace. So when I think about application for this, I think of humility. Is there anything that could humble us more than this? Reflect on this, Christian. What makes you to differ from those in hell? What makes you to differ? Is there something in you? Can you find some wisdom, good choices, decisions? Or is it all and entirely up to the sovereign work of God on your behalf? Oh, we should be the most humble people in the world. That God would choose, according to his own mysterious will, to save us who do not deserve it. But boy, doesn't this exalt his grace as well. We should be humble, and we should be worshiping. Oh, the depths of God's wisdom and grace. He chose. He chose to send His Son. He chose to suffer and die. He chose to choose undeserving sinners to receive His own inheritance because of who He is to the praise of His glory. Friend, this is a deep, deep mystery. doesn't mean we shouldn't fathom it, though, because it is a deep, deep cause of praise causes security for the saints and worship unto God. He is worthy of our praise. He who chose to save. Church, let's, let's bow our heads before our God. God, we think of worship and how people do it all over the world. Here in the quiet of our own hearts, we take our shoes off. We kneel before you.
and we prostrate ourselves before you. Stained glass adorning the temple of our hearts and incense burning within. We worship you, God. You are awesome. You are worthy of praise. You chose to reveal these things to us and to draw us to yourself and we give you thanks. And we say with Paul in Romans, Oh, the depth of the mystery of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are your judgments and how inscrutable your ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him? You might be repaid. For from you and through you and to you are all things, including our salvation. To you be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. We're going to sing a song now that we haven't sung before. The worship team very graciously learned yesterday at my request. It's an old hymn, and I want to just explain one word from this old hymn, because it's a hymn about election. It's a hymn about this revelation of who God is. The hymn is called How Sweet and Awful. And it's, it's an old use of the word awful. I know what you think when you hear the word awful, right? You think awful. It's terrible. Think awe-filled. Right? That's, that's, what, that's how they use this word, awe-filled. We could say awesome. How awesome is the grace of God revealed to us. Let's sing about God's grace together. <laughs> 